You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. The subject we're about to discuss may be revolting to some, so let's get that out of the way first, so you have a moment to possibly set your lunch aside. But you'll want to hear this because once you learn about parasites, you'll find that they are, well, yes, revolting, but they have redeeming qualities despite that. We're trying to determine and to describe biodiversity because we're losing biodiversity on our planet daily. And so one of the things we can do with parasitism is we can look at a few animals, get an idea of what their parasite loads are, and then we know a lot more about what's happening in the environment just by looking at the parasites. From tapeworms to ticks to some fungi, humans co-evolved with parasites. When we migrated across continents, they came with us. And although they can cause awful diseases, their presence is also an indication of whether an ecosystem is healthy. Yet there remain fundamental facts about parasites we still don't understand. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. We talk with a biologist who oversees one of the largest collection of parasites in the world about the most abundant animals on the planet. Find out how these organisms bond with their hosts, turn some of them into zombies, and which animal is host to the largest tapeworm. This episode is We'll Always Have Parasites. One of the first questions Scott Gardner is inevitably asked when people find out what he does for a living is whether he's ever personally combated one of the hundreds of thousands of specimens his lab has collected. Has he ever had an intestinal parasite? And I can tell you that he'll say with a smile, you bet, and enthusiastically reach behind him to grab the jar where the foot-long tapeworm is stored, a prize that he said he added to his collection a few years ago. Dr. Gardner is Curator of Parasites, quite a title that, at the Harold W. Manter Laboratory of Parasitology at the University of Nebraska State Museum, which houses one of the largest collections of parasites in the world. He also teaches biological sciences at the university and is co-author of Parasites, The Inside Story. I have to say, he has a knack for titles. In his book, he and his co-authors write, the planet is losing species faster than scientists can name them, much like burning a library without knowing the titles or contents of the books. Those species include the worms, viruses, arachnids, and fungi that are part of the vast global inventory of parasites, about which we still have much to learn. That includes their complex life cycles, their hosts and intermediate hosts, and the way that human activity is changing parasite behavior. Dr. Gardner says he wants to catalog this vast inventory of life while we still have a chance. Scott, when I opened your book, it opened to a color photograph of an enormous Alaskan brown bear standing in a river. It's a beautiful bear. It's a beautiful sight. The photo was taken from behind. And then you realize it's a shocking photo because the bear has what looks like a long, thin rope draping out of its backside. And then I realized what I was looking at, and it's a wonder that I could sleep that night. Scott, can you describe for us what this photo depicts? The bear picture was taken by Scott Davis. That bear has a tapeworm, and those tapeworms can get 20 to 30 meters long, like 45 feet long, inside that bear. And so... The bear was passing Diphilobothrium tapeworms 
and he happened to see the bear and take pictures of it while that was happening, and he was amazed, so he sent them to us. So just to be clear, this long rope <laughs> looks like two ropes coming out of the rear end of the bear is being dropped into the water. Yes. What happens next to that worm? Yeah, well, that's completing the life cycle of the tapeworm. The tapeworm is, is uh, dropping off segments, and the segments are going into the water, then the eggs hatch. The eggs hatch and these um, small little larvae come out and then they are eaten by a copepod, which are crustaceans. Then the copepod is then eaten by a small fish and then a bigger fish eats that fish and then it goes on until a big fish has a bunch of these tapeworms in its muscles and then a bear eats the muscle and becomes infected. So that's basically the quick life cycle. Now, does the bear go on to live a happy life, or is the bear now mortally sickened by this parasite? That's a, a really good question. Um, most parasites really don't do anything to their hosts. Um, some do. We know about malaria. We know others. But this kind of tapeworm, the bear has no idea. The bear, it, it makes no effect on the bear at all. It uses so little energy from what the bear actually consumes and has in its normal life that the parasite is irrelevant to the bear. Well, I'm really glad because if that bear could see what's coming out of its backside, I don't know that it would sleep well. Even bears are great sleepers, but even this bear might not be able to sleep well. Well, yeah. Scott, you write in your book that the three most abundant parasites are all worms, nematodes, flatworms, and something called the thorny-headed worm. Why did worms evolve to be effective and populous parasites? The worms are amazing parasites. Flatworms are these, it's a great large group of, of organisms called flatworms that started to evolve with vertebrates as vertebrates were evolving. And um, they're specially adapted to live inside the um, organisms that have an intestine. So basically the intestine is there, it's an open habitat. These things are small and flat and they can absorb nutrients directly through their tegument. Flatworms don't have most flatworms or many flatworms don't have much of an intestine, parasitic ones, especially tapeworms have no intestinal system. They have no gastrointestinal system at all. So they have no mouth, they have no anus. They just absorb all their nutrients right through their body wall, which is, that's how the tapeworm and the bears lives. So it's, a, it's just an open area of evolutionary diversification to have hosts there with this gastrointestinal tract as these animals were evolving, as we were evolving as small chordates in warm semi-saline oceans, the flatworms also were evolving and they began to infect their hosts. And so here we are all the way through. And these worms, you know, as the example of the, the bear's worm illustrates, can grow to be enormous. The largest worms are found in, in whales. How large can those internal worms grow? Well, that, that one's called uh, Polygonoporus, and it occurs in uh, some of the biggest whales, sperm whales, and they can be hundreds of feet long. They're really huge, and they produce hundreds of millions of eggs per day, because you can imagine how difficult it must be for the life cycle to be completed when just an egg goes into the water and you're in the ocean. The ocean is a pretty big thing. And so the egg is there, then it has to go into a copepod or a, some other type of crustacean, and then it develops in there, and then a fish has to eat that, and then it develops in the fish. So it's a really complex thing, but the only way that these parasites can make it from host to host is if they just put out hundreds of millions of eggs. They just have to just dump lots of it in order to make it to the next spot. And all those hundreds of millions of eggs might only get one successful transfer. Only needs one though. Okay, so in the case of Jonah and the whale, if um, ah. if Jonah were to be swallowed by the whale, he'd have some company. company. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he'd have friends. So he'd be in there and in the stomach, there are nematodes, organisms in the phylum nemata. We use the phylum nemata. And I have um, some examples of like two gallon jars from a pilot whale they were all the way full of just nematodes, these two gallons of, of nematodes from the whale. And the whale looked fine when it was caught. 
So well, well, Scott, that brings us to the definition of parasite. In the case of the bear and the whale, they seem to be unharmed. And yet, isn't the definition of a parasite a harmful organism or an organism that lives on or in another and that harms it? Absolutely. And so one of the interesting things about the definition of parasitism is it can be fairly um, flexible. And what I mean by that is that parasitism is kind of what I call a tension between two different organisms. You have one organism living inside or on the outside of another organism. But if it's a tapeworm living inside something big like us, and it's just a small tapeworm like Hymenolopus diminuta, then it doesn't really do much to the host. All it does is sit there and absorb nutrients. And you probably, most of us are eating too much anyway. And so there's plenty of food to go around. We'll probe this definition of parasite yeah. and, and why we want to talk about them. But just understand what's included under the umbrella of uh, parasites. Ticks and fleas are considered parasites, yeah. I believe. Mosquitoes, Scott, uh, bed bugs, are those all parasites? Yes, those are all examples of parasites. And we call those ectoparasites because they mostly live on the outside of their animal host. Um, you, we do have some, you might have some some mites living in your eyelashes that you could check later when you get time. And those are actually considered ectoparasites, but they're actually living down inside the hair follicle. So who knows? Ticks are ectoparasites because most of them live on the outside. They penetrate your blood system and then they just stay there and they fill up. Um, there are some mites, however, that actually live in your skin. Like probably you've heard of scabies. They live under your, just below the... Um, the dermal, the dermis, and they kind of migrate through and cause all kinds of problems because it gets really itchy. Um, fleas, lice, mites, all those things, examples of parasites that uh, are really, and there's really two ways to look at parasitism. There's obligate parasitism, and then there's like opportunistic parasitism. So obligate parasites cannot exist unless they have their host some of the opportunistic parasites, they don't necessarily have to have a host, but if one comes along, they'll take it. And on the subject of hosts, you write that we are all hosts, or I think the idea is every organism in the world is either a host or a parasite. <laughs> Humans are popular hosts. The most common parasite in North America, the most common helminth or worm parasite in North America for people is the pinworm. Almost everybody's familiar with it. Um, the nematode that is in most people in the world at any one time is called Ascaris lumbricoides. That's the large intestinal nematode that occurs in people. That's a, an example of a geohelminth, one that lives, it has to be transmitted by soil or water contamination. Well, well let's talk um, a little bit, let's talk a little bit more about Ascaris, um, because this sure. is a great example of, of the complex life cycle of parasites, which you alluded to earlier. You write that Ascaris is the gold medalist of the Parasite Olympics. Um, <laughs> what makes it an exemplary well, parasite? Well, Ascaris is a really um, successful parasite in humans and, uh, and other animals. The one that lives in us is called Ascaris lumbricoides. About one-fourth of the human population at any one time is infected with that nematode. We should say that includes about 50% of children globally. Um, I wouldn't say globally, but I would say in developing countries where there's not good sewer facilities, hygienic facilities, many, many children are infected at any one time with this parasite, yes. In North America, where we actually have good sanitary facilities, we don't have as much of a problem. However, I came back from Bolivia and I had Ascaris. I picked it up down there. I ate someone's, someone's feces accidentally, probably on a salad in a restaurant or who knows what. Um, I was extremely excited when I found it because it was the first parasite that I actually knew I had. So it's in the museum here now. Well, well hold on, hold on. We, ha we, need to, we need some more details about that. How did you know that you had a parasite? Did you feel it? Did, oh, gosh, I don't want to think about feeling no, a worm. No. But did you feel sick? No, not at all. The, Ascaris has a uh, direct life cycle. It doesn't have a complex life cycle. What I mean by complex life cycle is it would have to go into an intermediate host, like I talked about, Diphilobothrium. But Ascaris goes from human to human to human. Basically, um, you have to have fecal contamination in order to get infected with that one. Um, so what happened was 
I was working in Bolivia. Whenever I come back from working in a developing country, I usually just do a quick fecal check and find out whether I have anything because I can do it easily in the lab. So I was looking through the microscope with the slide on this on the stage and I, I saw lots of eggs. I thought, oh, okay, there's Ascaris. And I thought, oh, well, that's from me uh, because usually I'm looking at parasites from other animals or people. And I was pretty amazed that I was infected. So I went to the doctor, the physician on campus at the University of New Mexico and he said, oh no, it can't be that. We don't have parasites here. I said, well, I brought a slide. So he got out his old microscope and looked at it. So I'll be danged, you do have it. So I just took one little pill called Vermox and stirred around the toilet every morning for two days. And then I came up with a fully developed female nematode. There were no males. So she was passing eggs that were unembryonated. She hadn't been fertilized. So therefore I wasn't contributing to the global parasite diversity thing. You you expelled a worm and then yes. it, it went by pretty quickly, but I think we heard you say that it's in your collection there. Yeah, so I had it in the collection here for years because I showed my students when I was lecturing. It's on view there for anybody who'd like to see it. How long is it? Oh, it's only about, it's about 12 inches. It's not a very big one. Yeah. Well, Scott, everything you're saying now in some ways supports what you write in your introduction. And I'll just read what you write, that parasites are rarely described in positive terms. We see them as bloodsuckers, freeloaders, deadbeats, the worst kind of groupies. It sounds like that's precisely what they are. Yet it also suggests from, from your writing that they've gotten a bad rap because you also go on to say that we need a more nuanced view of them. And, and how so? I mean, how is it that parasites are useful or even necessary parts of ecosystems? Well, that's a really deep question that parasites can be parts of ecosystems that are useful or necessary. But if we look at it carefully, we can see that as we walk through a forest or we walk through a meadow or the, the plains, the prairies here, every little mammal that you see run by has parasites. They all have something. They might have protozoa that live in their intestine or their cecum, which is the fermentation bag in the animal. Or they might have tapeworms that transfer from a tick to the animal itself once the, the tick had eaten some feces of the little animal. The birds flying over may, might have tapeworms or trematodes or whatever. All of these animals um, have parasites. And as I said before, most of them don't really cause much uh, harm. Of course, when you have an animal that has really a lot of parasites and it's, it's sick anyway, it can be harmed. But the way we look at it and the way we utilize parasitisms in like an evolutionary ecological sense, and we're looking at these animals and we're trying to decide or we're trying to determine and to describe biodiversity because we're losing biodiversity on our planet daily. And so one of the things we can do with parasitism is we can look at a few animals, a few mammals, for instance, or a few birds, get an idea of what their parasite loads are. And then uh, we know a lot more about what's happening in the environment just by looking at the parasites. For instance, Tapeworms, we know that all tapeworms, except one or two species of all the 20,000 that have been described, all of them use intermediate hosts. So therefore, if we find one tapeworm in a small mammal, in a habitat, then we know that, that we have a complex life cycle going there. We know that the feces comes out with the tapeworm eggs. The eggs then have to be ingested by a mite or a flea or a beetle or something. And then those then have to be re-ingested by the host. And so we know instantly, if we find a tapeworm, that we have a complex life cycle going and we have a healthy ecosystem. So that's the bottom line, is that if we can utilize parasites and parasitism as indicators of areas of high biological diversity. But if one of those hosts disappears, then the life cycle stops and then we need to worry. At the moment, though, parasites abound. More about their diversity and more about why you might want to cook your steak tartare. Where you go, they go. It's We'll Always Have Parasites on Big Picture Science.
With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. This sounds like a recitation of Latin vocabulary. Hymenolopus diminuta. Another one is Hymenolopus toilatinensis. But it's Scott Gardner naming some of the 100,000 specimens that make up his collection of parasites at the University of Nebraska State Museum. Let's not forget the gopher nematode. Ransomus rodentorum. Another good one that I like a lot is Macrocantharynchus huidinaceus. It's one of the longest ones. Well, that makes some of them sound quite distinguished. But that last one, it's an intestinal parasite nicknamed the giant thorny-headed worm of swine, as its principal host is swine. These parasites and more, many more, live in and on animals, including us. You can see fantastic photos of these freeloaders, by the way, in Dr. Gardner's co-authored book, Parasites, The Inside Story, where the parasitologist lays out just how numerous these organisms are. I was surprised to read that parasites are the most abundant life form. And <laughs> is that more so than bacteria and viruses? No. And, and how is that possible? I mean, viruses, there are billions, trillions of viruses. Yes, viruses are, are more abundant and more diverse, but viruses are not animals. So I was talking about it in the terms of animal parasitism. Okay, so, so yeah. parasites are the most abundant animal Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but some viruses can be parasites. I think the rabies virus is an example of that, and that's one of the oldest. Actually, um, really interesting that the definition of parasitism is, you know, it seems like it's pretty straightforward when you're writing a book on parasitology, right? But then you start to then think about everything that's out there. All viruses are parasites because they cannot live without a host. The virus must go into a host in order to reproduce. The virus is usually considered a non-living entity until it gets into the host cell, shoots its, its materials inside the host cell, takes over the host cell, then makes more copies of itself, and then releases that out. So basically, viruses are basically parasites. But as we said, and I think in the book, at least I've said somewhere, that most people who study parasites study them like the tapeworms and the trematodes and the acanthocephalans and the nematodes. Those are kind of classical parasitologists. In France, parasitologists also study fungi. So it's pretty interesting to understand that we can't really define these things so black and white like we try. Parasites take a terrible toll on human communities. Who and what parts of the world are most vulnerable to parasitic diseases? You do write about the role of sanitation, the yes. importance of shoes, for example, in preventing parasitic diseases. Right. Parasitic diseases, for instance, um, one of them is hookworm. Hookworm is one of the parasites, especially nematode parasites, that causes huge amounts of morbidity and even mortality in people worldwide. It used to be much more common in North America until the life cycles uh, was discovered and, and it was well known what was causing the people to have such low hemoglobin counts is that they were really hyperinfected with hookworms. And the life cycle of that one is very straightforward. Encelostoma duodenale, hookworms that live in people, hook onto the intestine and pull parts of the mucosa from the lining of your intestine into their what's called their stoma. Then they have these little hooks and they scrape off the villi and it starts to bleed. Then they um, use what's called an anticoagulant and the blood just keeps flowing. So they suck up a lot of blood through, their, through the gastrointestinal system, goes right through. They use a little bit of it, but most of it goes right through. So if you have a lot of these nematodes, they can take almost several milliliters of blood per day per human. 
Um, of course, a lot of the blood that comes out of the nematode then is resorbed by the person infected, but not all of it. So it can really cause huge damage to people. And some of these nematodes, some of the uh, hookworms can live in people for a really long time. So in North America, for instance, the hookworms were a really big problem up until the uh, 1930s. The uh, Rockefeller Foundation provided funds to build latrines and to educate people and to get shoes on people so people wouldn't become infected. The way the life cycle of Ancelostoma goes is that the eggs come out in the feces from a female that had mated with a male in the intestine. The eggs come out, they go into the soil. After a couple of days, the eggs then hatch in the soil in the fecal pat that was there if someone actually defecated outside. That's why it's so important to use latrines and uh, sanitary facilities for all of our feces of humans. Um, so then the nematodes are sitting there in the fecal pat, ready to infect a person. And if you sit on it or step on it, the nematodes penetrate your skin, go into your bloodstream, go to the liver, go to the heart, and then go to your lungs, then molt again, then climb up, and then you swallow them, they go back down into your intestine, then hook on in the small intestine and begin living. So the hookworm is a really insidious one. Well, Scott, you're, the examples that you're providing of um, the worms, the parasites that infect humans to this day, raises the question of why our bodies are so susceptible to parasitic infection after all these years of evolution. Why haven't we found a more, I know, robust way of fighting them off? That's a good question. We're susceptible to parasitic infections because Parasites have a huge ability to probe many, many different hosts. They have in their genomes the abilities to adapt and to live in many different kinds of hosts. So therefore, they're always probing different hosts. So there's host switching going on all the time. It's called ecological fitting. And there's these parasites that are out there. And if, if, if you walk into a habitat that you've never been in before, the parasites will try to jump into you and, and use you, use you as a person or any other animal that went into the area. You're giving me a lot of good reasons to stay at home and never. Yeah. <laughs> I've already started well, washing true. my hands even more than I was, but not to yeah. leave the house. Okay, go on. I do. I always wash my hands quite a lot. But you're saying that they're, they're quite adaptable. So one of the ways yes. that they're adaptive, they're adaptive is they can switch hosts. Yes. Um, the, the idea of host switching or ecological fitting is one of the really main parts of uh, host parasite evolution that we think of today. They have, all these parasites have a really deep phylogenetic signals that allow them to make it in another host. It seems yeah. like another trick, they, they, some of them seem quite wily, and I'm thinking of um, a trick exhibited by the tapeworm, which is that the tapeworm is modular, so it can break off into segments and am I right in remembering that each segment has eggs? So it would, you know, you could try to cut it up or destroy it, but it would continue living and, as you say, dump eggs? Right. So that's, well, here's a good example. There are two different, well, there's these nematode, these tapeworms that we call tinea that live in all carnivores. There's a lot of carnivores out there that have these things called tinea. And people have two species, tinea saginata and tinea solium and they can get to be 40 feet long in your intestine. If you like to eat beef tartare, you too could have that, especially if you eat it in Mexico or Guatemala somewhere. We usually don't have it here because if they find it here when they're doing meat inspections, they generally don't lo let those parasites pass through the, into the meat system. So if you eat raw meat, you could get this tapeworm. So the tapeworm called, let's, let's use the one that's not so, so virulent in people. Tinea saginata gets in people, and it lives there, and, it's, and you don't know you have it, because it, and it's producing eggs. But the way a tapeworm works is that it has an anterior end, which has got the scolex, and it sticks on to the small intestine. And that's got suckers, four suckers that suck on. And then there's a neck, and then there's segments that start to form behind that neck. It's called strobilization, and the eggs, or the, uh, the segments begin forming, and they, they develop, and they, the youngest part is in the neck, and the oldest part is down toward the posterior end. So the tapeworm um, then finds another tapeworm and they mate in the intestine. They transfer sperm and then the eggs are fertile. The eggs then begin to fill up these segments. So basically the segment just turns into one big pack of eggs. Then all those segments 
as they're going down and getting mature, moving down toward the posterior end of the animal, eventually they become mature, which not they're not really mature, they become infective, and then they break off either in a whole chain, like on, in the bear that was sending out lots of big chains of segments, or one segment pops off and it comes out in the feces of the host. So these things, just the, the head end of the tapeworm can live for 25 years in the small intestine, the same head, but all these segments keep passing out, producing literally pounds of uh, tapeworm eggs over time. <laughs> Scott, really, how popular are you at parties? <laughs> oh yeah, that's one of the problems. You, you never want to take a parasitologist to dinner, right? <laughs> right, because you can tell all these things. There was a guy, at the, at the Monfort meat packing plant in um, Greeley, Colorado, who was, who was infected with tinea saginata, and he was defecating in one of the feedlots there while I was a student of Jerry Schmidt at the University of Northern Colorado. All of the cattle started becoming infected, they, and they didn't know why, so they had to condemn all those cattle because cattle like to eat human feces. If they find it, they'll eat it. Um, and so this was uh, a big problem. So, you know, if you're infected with tapeworms, don't defecate near cows. You know, it's curious because we did an interview about the rise in allergies, and one of the things that, that medical anthropologists said is that, you know, we stopped playing around in dirt, and that deprived our immune systems from the training that they needed. On the other hand, we don't want to play around in dirt and ingest, you know, some of these parasitic eggs. Uh, so is it exposure or is it, you know, hygiene that needs to be improved? I think hygiene is important to keep uh, it doesn't take too much to have good hygiene. All you need is an outhouse. So as you can tell in our book, the pictures of the little of the outhouse, the reason we have it, the reason we show it broken down is because if it was a perfect outhouse, we wouldn't have the cycle going. That's why we showed the picture of the outhouse with the door hanging off. And so the person's going in is going, I don't know if I want to go in the outhouse because it's so disgusting in there. So they don't use the outhouse. Therefore, the cycle can continue. Yeah, so fewer parasites causes our, our system to kind of sometimes I think I'm not an immunologist at all but some people say that it becomes hyper it becomes hyper aware of things that do come in but if we had parasites in us just a few at the beginning when we were young then it probably wouldn't be that big of a deal when we get older so it's an interesting there's some interesting things being published on that I'm not really up on the immunological parts of it not many parasites are beneficial but here's an example how a parasite has been beneficial to our family my husband found a long tapeworm in a chicken a few years ago nice. both both <laughs> yeah nice both were yeah. cooked thank god and it was long it was a tipping point in getting us to give up meat although oh. although he said something at the time like hey it's cooked protein and it's no grosser than eating chicken flesh the grossness is relative perhaps it is in fact some people eat fried trematodes so they go out in the field, they cut open a deer, they get these great big trematodes out, they fry them in a uh, frying pan and they eat them. So um, people just eat this stuff. I, you know, it's, it's not that gross. I mean, if we eat, if we kill an animal, eviscerate it, and then eat the meat, what's the difference? Well, Molly, I got to say, I mean, this subject is big on yuck factor, but on the other hand, it's incredibly interesting what nature has done. Yeah, and how versatile these organisms are well they're you know they have a lot of plasticity i guess you could you could say they can adapt to anything i i think that uh, you know it was said that these uh parasites are always probing they're always willing to take on a different host right because they can adapt to that new host and it might offer them some sort of advantage i mean you know i don't change my diet much but <laughs> these guys certainly can <laughs> they may prompt you as they did me to change your diet. You know, when we were putting the show together, we were writing the script and saying that we will talk about how parasites bond with their host. And you question the term bond. Do you question it now, now that you've heard how those hookworms get in there? <laughs> That gave me a whole new perspective on it, I must confess. Right, they, li they literally hook on, my gosh. <laughs> Now, some of the stranger behaviors exhibited by these organisms, like the ability to turn their hosts into zombies. And it says, ant, 
you're now under my control. So then the ant, instead of going back into its ant uh, nest at night, climbs up a piece of grass and then clamps on with its mandibles on the grass and waits. Find out what that ant is waiting for next. We aren't going to rid ourselves of them, so let's understand them better. This episode of Big Picture Science is, we'll always have parasites. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as our discussion about parasites gets into the weeds, where, incidentally, parasites like to hang out, we look at some of the more bizarre behaviors they exhibit in order to ensure reproduction. Some of the most intriguing examples are the parasites that take control of their hosts and, and work them like puppets. They turn them into zombies in some cases, even turning them, I learned in your, in your book, fluorescent orange in others. Can you give us just a, a few examples of how these parasites manipulate their hosts in pretty creative ways and why they do that? Yeah, one of my favorites is called Dicrocelium dendriticum. Okay, so imagine that we have a deer or a cow infected with Dicrocelium dendriticum in its intestine or in the gallbladder system, and the eggs come out in the feces. And along comes a land snail. The land snail takes in some of the feces along with some of the eggs, and the eggs then hatch and then go to the digestive gland of, of the snail, and then they reproduce asexually and turn into a whole bunch of what's called cercaria. And then the cercaria come out, and when they pop out of the snail, they go into the mantle cavity of the snail, and a bunch of mucus is produced, and they make these things called slime balls. So there's these big globs of slime from the mucus of the snail. And as the snail moves around, you've probably seen these where the snails are out after it rains, you can see these little slimy trails. Well, this is what happens and the slime balls are there. And then along comes a carpenter ant. And the carpenter ant says, wow, look at that, it's a whole slime ball. So it eats the slime ball, which is full of these infective cercaria. And then one cercaria goes to the dorsal ganglion of the ant and it says, ant, you're now under my control it's under its control. So then the ant, instead of going back into its ant uh, nest at night, climbs up a piece of grass and then clamps on with its mandibles on the grass and waits. Along comes a deer and eats the ant. If the ant doesn't get eaten that night, it goes back and acts like a, as the temperature goes back up during the day, then it acts like a normal ant and it just does normal ant things. But then when the temperature starts to go down in the evening, the ant goes back up the grass and waits to be eaten again. It's just fascinating. So, yeah. so to be clear, what happens is that this parasite, using the snail as an intermediate host, infects an ant and gets the ant to do something that is not in its best interest, which is crawl up a blade of grass and sit there, attracting the attention of a predator. It's not in the interest of the ant, but it is in the interest of the parasite because the parasite lives to see another day, even if the ant doesn't. Another example you give, I, I mentioned the one about fluorescent orange. I think some animals end up with yes. a fluorescent orange glow to them. Which which animals are those? Remind me. Yeah, that one is um, it's an acanthocephalon that lives in ducks usually, and then it can, uh, when the eggs come out, aquatic amphipod eats the egg and then the egg then converts into a larval form of the acanthocephalon. And when it does that, then it turns orange. It uses carotenes and turns bright orange inside the hemocele of the amphipod. And then, it, then the amphipod is either, it's either seen more easily or it just happens to be a byproduct of being in the um, hemocele, but it's bright orange and you can see it real easily. And along comes a duck and eats it. Bright orange is not the color you wanna be if you're trying yeah. to camouflage. Right. With your background. One of my favorites was um, how the uh, parasite 
crawls into the snail's eye stalks and gets the eye stalks to wave back and forth. Yeah, starts pulsating. Yeah, that's an interesting oh, one. Goodness. That, that's the that's the trematode that occurs in birds. They get in there and they cause the the uh, the cercaria cause the or it could be the sporocysts that are causing the eye stalks to just pulsate. And apparently, when that happens, it attracts birds um, more easily than if the snail wasn't infected. Well, Scott, this brings us to another counterintuitive moment, which is people listening to this might think, you know, decreasing the biodiversity of parasites might be a really good thing. But that is not what you're saying. You're saying it's important to preserve the biodiversity of all animals, and that includes parasites. Well, I think part of it is that these life cycles of, of the parasites in the animals that we all know and love, birds and mammals and and reptiles and amphibians and fishes, all of these life cycles are going on continuously. And we know that if we interrupt those life cycles in some way by decreasing the number of individual fishes, so we break the life cycle that way, or we, we use too many chemicals and we take out the intermediate hosts, then that's another way. So I think the way I look at it is I use these parasites as indicators of high areas of biodiversity. We go into an area that's highly biodiverse there's a lot of a lot of plants, a lot of animals there, and if we see that there's a lot of connections among and between all of these different animals in those habitats by seeing that there's lots of parasites with complex life cycles, then that's really interesting. A student and I did a did some work on nematodes of grapes in California. We looked at wild grapes, um, Vitis gerdiana, then we looked at what I call tame grapes. Uh, Vitis vinifera. And it turns out that areas that have been plowed just a couple of times, or maybe just even one time, have really low, low density and low um, number of, of nematodes. And all the nematodes that are in those areas where the grapes are growing are almost all plant parasitic nematodes. But if we go into an area that's never been plowed and there's grapes growing there, we look at the roots of those grapes and there's over 70 species of different kinds of nematodes, many predators, few parasites, but all kinds of free living ones. So it indicates to us, we're really changing things is the point. So if you go in and you plow an area, you're really decreasing the biodiversity for a very long time. It sounds like there's something vital. I mean, there is something vital going on here. And even though we're all suppressing our revulsion to parasites, they also reveal how species evolved to be intertwined with each other, if not in such a basic direct way, but it's a very intimate relationship, parasite and host, but we have an intimate relationship with all species, or at least ecosystems are intimately woven. And and I don't think we take that to heart, that we're all dependent on the rich biodiversity and the richness around us. We are. Um, One of the things that I like to show whenever I give a talk is a picture of the earth that was taken by the Apollo astronauts from the moon. Because we look at that picture and there's the earth rise coming over the moon. And this is the only place that we have. We only have that one little globe that we live on. And so um, everything that's there has evolved 3 billion years of life evolution. It's very interesting that we're here. So we're pretty lucky to be here. Everything is so intimately interrelated, interconnected. Parasitism is just one of the really interesting connections that keeps things going on the earth. You know, we have carnivory, herbivory, etc. Well, let's talk then about how things are changing and what the future looks like and what we might want to be looking out for in terms of a changing relationship with parasites. How is our relationship with parasites changing? How have human actions, our movements, our migrations, this is a really big picture question, Scott. It is. Um, how we've changed the environment created new evolutionary pressures on these organisms? Well, the, um, of course, we don't, want to, we don't want everybody to have scabies, you know, caused by Sarcoptes scabii. We don't want everybody to have Ascaris. And we don't ever want, want everyone to have um, malaria, for instance, caused by Plasmodium. What we're seeing, though, is when we are changing the environment, we, when we're walking into the rainforest in Brazil where they're cutting the forest down, then the people who are going into those edge zones are getting infected with, with trypanosomes, which are called leishmania. Um, and those are transmitted by sand flies, for instance. And so 
we are exposing ourselves, the more we, in, we integrate, interdigitate our lives into the natural ecosystems, we're exposing ourselves more and more to the parasites that are out there. And the parasites, as, as we said at the beginning, are probing constantly for new hosts. And so it's just a natural consequence of walking into areas that have these different parasites that normally cycle through small mammals and flies. And so they say, oh, there's a big mammal. Let's cycle through that, see if it works. So it's a very interesting thing. And my, as I said before, my focus is to understand diversity from at the species level. So I'm kind of a bottom up person when it comes to looking at species and speciation. I like to know the number of species that we're seeing in a defined geographic area. The biodiversity is described, uh, it can be defined as all of these species that occur in a, a specific biogeographic area. Well, if we look at the earth from the moon, you know, there's biodiversity, there's our earth. So everything that's there, we need to know. And climate change certainly has altered the host parasite dynamic. And I'm wondering yes. if, you know, one of your goals, as you said, is to, is to catalog this form of life at a time when humans are driving species to extinction faster than we have a chance to identify them. But you're also monitoring how parasites are changing, the relationships are changing. And I'm wondering if, given the additional pressure of climate change, if, you are, if you're monitoring emerging parasitic diseases. Yes, and so what we hope to do, and I've put in several grant proposals to do this in North America, is to try to look at what kinds of tapeworms occur in the carnivores around throughout North America. And we didn't get the funding to do it initially, but we'll still work on it. The tapeworms can jump into people and cause some really big problems. They're called it's called echinococcosis, echinococcus. And so that's one. We're looking at how things are changing. And we don't know whether or not there's going to be more people getting infected because of these tapeworms and the voles and the carnivores because of climate change, or I call it global warming. As things warm up, will the voles move further north because it's too hot in the south? Or will they be moving south and we're going to have... We don't know what's going to happen. So we just don't have any idea what's going to happen with many of these kinds of parasites that are jumping into people. We know that malaria has just been found near Brownsville, Texas, um, a case that was from someone who hadn't even traveled out of the area. And there's a couple of other cases from Florida that uh, are recent from being infected by uh, mosquito bites from someone who had been infected. So the, the, it wasn't someone who came in who ha was infected. It was someone who actually got malaria from walking outside. So as things are heating up, we're getting species changing, we're getting species moving. In 200 years, people are going to be moving from the coasts to the middle part of the of the continent because the coast will be underwater. Those kinds of things are going to cause major problems too. So there's, you know, we have to think about in the long run here, it's, we're in a kind of a dire situation. Well, perhaps it's an appropriate time to paraphrase what the writer and the doctor Jerome Groupman said at the review, at the end of the review to your book, that um, given that every organism is either a parasite or a host, and if the definition, the loose definition of parasite is an organism that does harm to its host, and in light of your work trying to catalog life before we drive it to extinction, yes, he wondered how much of human behavior on Earth resembles that of a parasite if we think of Mother Earth as our host. I know. that's That was a very um, insightful statement that, that he made. And I, I think of that whenever I look at that picture of the Earth over the edge of uh, the Apollo astronauts. And then the final image of Voyager leaving our solar system, the pale blue dot that Carl Sagan indicated hanging in a sunbeam. Scott Gardner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Scott Gardner is curator of parasites at the H.W. Manter Laboratory of Parasitology at the University of Nebraska State Museum, one of the largest collections of parasites in the world. He's a professor of biological sciences at the University of Nebraska and co-author of Parasites, the Inside Story. Well, Molly, despite the unpleasant uh, details of the life cycle of a parasite, I have to say it's incredible what nature is able to do. I mean, their life cycles can be incredibly complicated. First they do this, and then they go into that stage, and then they jump a host to somewhere else. I mean, it makes you wonder 
how long it took them to develop all that ability, but in the end, it paid off. I was intrigued by how Scott uses parasites as a kind of metric for how healthy an ecosystem is. If you have a lot of parasites, that means that you have a lot of hosts and you may have intermediate hosts and you may have a rich ecosystem. So (laughs) even if we recoil from these worms, uh, they are important. Well, you know, that the biologists have been able to calibrate that a little bit. That's really also remarkable, Uh, you know, and pointing out all the interdependency here. You know, you talk about the web of life. Well, that's easy to say, but here you see that it's really true that every species is connected to probably every other species in some way, even in a kind of unpleasant way. So even after all this discussion, you're still maintaining that Parasites are unpleasant and revolting. Have you not changed? You haven't changed your opinion of that? Well, no. I, it has, I haven't changed my opinion, but I've always been squeamish, I, I must say that. And besides, I mean, despite finding them unpleasant, I mean, there are plenty of people who study them, so they can't all find them unpleasant. I mean, there's, there's a certain fascination, and it is indeed fascinating simply because it's so exquisitely tuned, if you know what I mean. They, you know, the the life cycles have been, well, uh, tuned to the circumstances, ecological, biological, whatever they are, uh, over the course of hundreds of millions, even billions of years. And it's just amazing what nature can do. I'm sorry, I'm sounding like a wide-eyed kid here, but it is amazing. Did Dr. Gardner put you off eating steak tartare? I don't know if you eat steak tartare, but um, (laughs) would you continue to? Well, actually, I was tempted because it was uh, more of a thing where I was living in Europe than it is where I live now. But somehow I, I wasn't able to bring myself to do it, honestly. And it wasn't based on any knowledge of parasites or anything like that. It, it just somehow didn't appeal to me. Well, on the subject of food, I'll leave you with this image because I certainly won't be able to shake it. It's the one of Dr. Gardner's personal tapeworm. And I know this because he showed me the jar with the tapeworm in it and what it looks like, Seth, I have to tell you, is a long spiral of flat pasta like fettuccine, but it's not like any jar that you'd ever want in your pantry. Wow, that doesn't sound very pleasant somehow. This show would not be possible without the help its hosts receive from senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Gary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that studies life in all its complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode of Big Picture Science that examines organisms that live in us and on us and their importance to biodiversity is We'll Always Have Parasites. <laughs>